Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he constantly used short stories or parables to communicate spiritual truths to the crowds that gathered to hear him. By telling parables, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to Jesus' disciples, but they would be hidden from his opponents. Listen to this talk from the parable series as we dive into some of Jesus' most memorable stories. Good morning, y'all. Uh, so when I grew up, I grew up in a Christian home. However, I didn't place my faith in Christ until I was a freshman in high school. And it was actually at a Young Life camp called Lake Champion in upstate New York. And that week was still one of the best weeks of my life. And at the end of that week, I joyfully received Christ as my Savior. However, after that week, I, I wasn't really growing in my faith. I think what happened was I didn't really let the truth that I began to believe in, the truth of the gospel, really to take root in my soul. I didn't really make a priority to get God's word into my life. And I know now when I look back that I had a misunderstanding of what Christianity was really about, right? Like I kind of thought that, that once I place my faith in Jesus, I'm going to go home and everything's just going to be great. It's going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be kind of easy from here on out because I know Jesus now. However, that wasn't the case, right? I mean, I came back from camp. Camp ended. We, we took a bus home to Bridgeport, and, and life just kind of kept moving on. And a lot of the problems and stressors and difficulties that I left behind the week before were waiting for me when I got back. One of the biggest ones was, was my mom had passed away earlier that year, and when I got back, she was, she was still gone. And I was still dealing with the woundedness and kind of the trauma from that situation. And what happened was that I had this misunderstanding, right, of Christianity and of Jesus. Now that's all supposed to work. But at the same time, I had this reality of life and all these different things I was dealing with. And when those kind of two things kind of came together, I just rebelled. I just kind of rebelled in every way possible, kind of living pretty wildly in, in, in this kind of craziness. And, and, but the crazy thing was, is while all that was still happening, I was still kind of doing all the church stuff partly because I had to, because my dad was making me, partly because I thought it was the right thing to do. But so I was doing kind of both of these things. But at the end of that year, at the end of my sophomore year of high school, two incredibly significant things happened that totally changed my life. And the first one was when I was asked to be a part of kind of leading this ministry that my family had all been a part of for years. And when they asked me, they were like, hey, you should pray about it. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, I didn't really even know. Like, I prayed to accept Jesus, and I knew I prayed at dinner every night, but that was, like, the extent of it. Like, so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll listen to this CD that my friend gave me when I met Christ. And, and so I turned this CD on. This was kind of my version of praying at this point in time. This is all I could think to do. And uh, it was a CD called Rebel by a Christian rapper named Lecrae. And there's a track on it, track five. It's called Indwelling Sin. And in the song... He says, I'm standing on these stages and I got these people believe in me. What do I look like trying to gratify the disease in me? And, and I think in other words, kind of what he's saying is that, man, he was telling people to, about Jesus and he was telling people to follow Jesus and he was proclaiming Jesus, but he wasn't doing it himself. He wasn't really living how he was telling other people to live. And so he kind of felt this tension there. And when I listened to it, I realized I wasn't living in accordance with how God wanted me to live, yet I knew that Jesus was my Savior, and I knew that, he, that everyone needed him, but I didn't live like it, and I didn't live like Jesus lived. And so what happened is I feel like God was kind of giving me an ultimatum. Like, hey, you can stop saying that you really follow me because you're not, or 
You can actually follow me and leave all these things behind and really experience life. And so that's what I chose to do. I chose to kind of leave all that stuff behind and kind of left all kind of that rebellious stuff, kind of cold turkey that summer. And I began to try and follow Jesus and figure out what that meant. And I decided I would kind of help lead that ministry. And I had no clue what that meant at the time, but I was going to do it. And then the second thing happened kind of simultaneously. There's this guy named Luch who moved to town, and I think I may have talked about Luch before, but he's uh, one of the pastors on staff at South Ridge down in Fairmont, our sister church. But at this time, he had just graduated college when I was a sophomore in high school. I just finished that year. He just graduated college, and he moved to Bridgeport and was working for Young Life. And one of our mutual friends connected us, and it was actually the same friend that gave me the CD that I had listened to. So I just love kind of the connections in these stories. It's super neat to look back on. But anyways, I, I thought Luch was really weird. I mean, like, why is this 22-year-old guy trying to hang out with me and my high school friends? Like, you're married. Go do married stuff, bro. And the irony is not lost on me that I'm a 29-year-old married guy with three kids that hangs out with middle school, high school, and college students for a living. But what happened was, is right, you know, like, we would let Luch hang around because we needed an extra body for basketball. So we'd let him come or something like that. But, but over time, it's like, man, this, this guy really actually cares about me. He cares about my friends, and he wants us to know Jesus, and he wants us to follow Jesus. He wants to help us do that. And I began to see that, and kind of what happened is he, he kind of took me under his wing and began to teach me what following Jesus after placing my faith in him looked like. And he began to help me kind of cultivate a heart that was receptive to hearing God's word and allowing it to take root in my life. See, because before these two things happened, I, th I think I had a problem, and I think it's a problem, excuse me, we all face. And the problem is we don't really allow God's truth to penetrate our hearts. Or as I was talking to someone in between the services, it made them think of like, man, we kind of keep God at, a, at an arm's length, at a distance. And I've been involved with ministry for some form or fashion for about 12, 13 years now. And, and I've seen this to be true over and over again. People will hear God's word. Seeds will be planted. Nothing changes. There's no transformation, there's no life change, there's no fruit, and, and it's heartbreaking to see as someone who loves this person, someone is just, they're kind of just indifferent to the gospel, or, or they were really excited about Jesus, and now they're kind of backing, fading back into that indifference, not really caring anymore. But this is our nature as people, as humans. We don't naturally drift toward Jesus. I think following Jesus is a lot like swimming upstream. And I'm reminded of a quote I shared a few years ago from D.A. Carson where he says this, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, it's an effort that's the foundation of it is the grace of Christ. Don't miss that. But people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. See, our effort is only worth anything when it is rooted in the power and the grace of Jesus, but it does require our effort to grow in him. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 7. He said, his divine power, God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. It's the foundation, it's the root, his power, his love, his mercy. He's given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he's given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, because of Jesus, because of God, because of who they are, what they've done, 
Because of that, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. This morning, we're beginning a new series for the summer called The Parables of Jesus, and and you guessed it. We are going to be looking at the parables of Jesus, a different one each week. And if you're not familiar with the word parable, uh, it literally means to kind of cast alongside or kind of to hold up next to. could be another way to think of it. And parables, they're creative stories that are intentionally going to kind of resonate with their audience so that they can kind of think about and communicate to them a deep spiritual truth. And the gospel accounts have over 30 different parables that Jesus shared to his disciples and to other people listening. And while he did use parables a few times kind of early on in his ministry, the parable we're looking at today is kind of a turning point in his ministry where he began to kind of shift all of his teaching to be kind of parable centered, whereas he was speaking kind of plainly before. Now he's going to speak in these stories, these creative stories, and it's kind of this new thing that he's doing now. And we're going to see because it's this new thing he's doing, this new shift in his teaching method, he kind of explains it a little bit more and he explains why he's doing that. So we're going to see that in what we read this morning. But the parable we're looking at, it's known as the parable of the sower. And it's a super pivotal time in Jesus's ministry with all this happening, right? And we find this parable actually in all three of the synoptic gospels. And the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So excluding John, that's the only account that's not included in that three. And the word synoptic, big fancy word that just means the same. And so these three accounts of Jesus's life are very similar and they're also kind of, in a lot of ways, the, the content is very similar, the events they record, the things that Jesus says in particularly, and the order in which it happened, very, very similar. Whereas John kind of takes a different approach. Like, it's very distinct. He's like, I'm going to tell Jesus' story, but in a different way than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are kind of telling it in one way. And so before he told this parable, this, this kind of very same day, earlier that day, a lot of things happened. And so a couple of things, Jesus healed a bunch of people. And part of those people was a man with a shriveled hand and a man who was demon-possessed. And once he did these things, healed all these people, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, they attributed everything that Jesus did to Satan, to the devil. So they not only didn't agree with Jesus, and it wasn't just that they didn't accept his message, they rejected it, but they were so closed off to the truth that before they were willing to acknowledge that he might in fact be who he says he is, they were willing to claim that everything he did was of the devil. Lewis Barbary notes this about Matthew chapter 12. This is the chapter where all that kind of goes down. He says, this previous chapter is probably the major turning point in the book. The king had authenticated his power by various miracles, but growing opposition to the king climaxed when Israel's leaders concluded that Jesus worked not by divine power, but by satanic power. While their full rejection of him did not occur until later, the die was cast. Therefore, Jesus turned to his disciples and began to instruct them along different lines. All right, so stage is set. This is kind of the context. This is where Jesus tells this parable. So let's start digging into it. Matthew chapter 13, verse one. It says, on that day, Jesus went out of the house and he was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. 
And for much of his public ministry, I mean, Jesus drew large crowds. There was something about him that was magnetic. There was something about him that was gravitational, that people were just pulled in to hear him, to see him, to just be around. There was this kind of attraction that people came. But it's really interesting. I mean, so many people came to hear him talk or to be healed by him. But very few of those people actually started following him while he was living his life on earth. However, when all the people did come around, Jesus would do things like getting into the boat. He's not just trying to like get away from people. It's not pandemic. He's not trying to keep six feet of space. He would do that to kind of, so he would have the, the water to be kind of an acoustic. Uh, it would kind of enhance the acoustics so more people could hear him, more people could see him. Uh, and we had some mic issues last service. And I was thinking like, hey, if it happens again, we're just going down to Cheat Lake. I'll stand on a boat. You guys can hang on the shore. It'll be great. Hopefully it's not raining or anything like that. Thankfully the mic is working and we can just hang out here. But we pick back up in verse 3. It says this, Then Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit. Some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? So the disciples, they're confused at this shift in teaching, right? He previously was telling people things plainly about the kingdom of God, but now he's kind of telling these stories to allude to truths about the kingdom of God. And his interaction the previous day with the Pharisees, that's kind of what launched this kind of shift in teaching. And he goes on to explain to the disciples why he did this, starting in verse 11. Jesus answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says this, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they've shut off their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see but didn't see them to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. And at first glance, I, I, when I was reading that, I was like, man, this is weird. Like, it seems like Jesus is doing this so people will intentionally not understand what he's talking about. I mean, does Jesus want less people to understand the good news? Like, it seems really counterintuitive. And as I kind of kept reading and studying, found out that it, that it is counterintuitive because that's not what he wants. See, Jesus isn't saying that he's teaching in parables to confuse people or so that they won't understand, 
but he's speaking to people plainly. He's been doing that, and they hardened their hearts. They didn't want to listen. They didn't accept it when he was speaking plainly. And so because they haven't accepted his message, they don't have the ability to now understand. They don't have the ability to now understand. And J. Knox Chamberlain, he puts it this way. He says, given the crowd's reaction of earlier truth, thinking about like the Pharisees and everything earlier, the parables, far from granting deeper insight, actually obscure the truth that they've already received and thus become a means of judgment for their having rejected the message of the kingdom. As verse 13 makes clear, Jesus speaks to the crowds in parables because they do not see what he's already told them, not in order that they may not see what he's now telling them. The quotation from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 describes their condition prior to Jesus' teaching them parables, not as the result of the parables. Until they rightly respond to the light they've already received, Jesus will not give them more light. Rather, he will take away the light they've received. Might not this frightful word of judgment be God's means for moving the crowds from their stupor toward repentance and faith. And so J. Knox Chamberlain, he thinks that God is doing this because when he starts speaking in parables, they're going to be like, I don't get what this man is talking about. And maybe it'll pique some curiosity in them. And maybe they'll be open to actually listening to what Jesus has to say, where they've been totally rejecting it as he's been teaching it plainly. And, and I love the last line of the Isaiah passage that Jesus quoted. If they would just turn to me, I would heal them. I mean, I love that about Jesus, right? That his grace is for everybody, that he just wants you to turn to him and that's all it takes to turn to him and place your faith in him. He loves you and he's waiting for you to do that as he was waiting for these people to do that here, to be saved and to be made new. But later in the chapter, he gives a second reason for this new type of teaching, for teaching in parables. In verse 34, it says, Jesus told the crowd all things in parables. And he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And so this is a prophecy related to the Messiah. And so in teaching in parables, Jesus is also fulfilling this prophecy about the Messiah. Another way of him saying, hey, the person you've been waiting for, it is me. Now back to the parable itself. Jesus, because I think it's the first one, he's really gracious in this and that he explains what he means by it to his disciples. And so we get to read that. And he goes on to explain that the parable has a few different kind of parts. And we see this in Mark and Luke's gospel more than Matthew's. But he says that there's the sower, right? The one sowing the seed. And the sower is Jesus. It is himself proclaiming the seed, the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel. It is God's word. And so the sower is Jesus. The seed is God's word. And then the soil are the responses to God's word, whether we're accepting or rejecting of his word. They're different type of people, different types of hearts. David Platt notes this. He says that Jesus' diagnosis of the situation is that the problem of rejection, the reason the seed is being rejected, it's not with the seed, the gospel of the kingdom, and it's not with the sower, Jesus. The problem is with the soil, with the human heart. Jesus points to four different kinds of soil, representing four different heart responses to the message of salvation. And we're gonna look at those now, but before we hop into them, I just want us to all ask ourselves a question. Is what kind of heart do you have? 
Because as we're reading through this, I think what Jesus is doing, he's kind of holding this parable up to us like a mirror, saying like, look at yourself, examine yourself, be honest with yourself. Where do you fit in this story? Because we all fit somewhere. So as we're reading through that, let's be thinking about that kind of for us, ourselves personally, where am I at in this situation? So Jesus, he explains this first heart response in verses 18 and 19 when he says this, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And so the first group of people who hear God's word are those who have hard hearts. These are people that don't understand what they're hearing, whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether they're just not getting it or they're choosing to reject it. They're, not, they're choosing intentionally to not get it. The message of the good news of the kingdom is not able to penetrate their hearts and the person isn't interested enough in Christ to kind of pursue things any further, to investigate, to listen a little bit more. And what's the case, when that's the case, because Satan doesn't want us to be in the thing we were created for, in right relationship with God, and this is the beginning of that, he will snatch those seeds away so that there's no chance that we could ever, those things can take root. And now this morning, I I don't want to assume that just because you're here, just because you're listening, that you are open to Jesus. You may very well not be. Someone else may have just kind of drugged you here this morning or turned off the TV and not given you the remote. And so what I want to do is just encourage you to be open to Christ's love for you, to the possibility that he is actually who he says he is, because if he is who he says he is, he's everything you've ever wanted and needed. Everything you're looking for, you can find it in him. So please be open to that possibility. We see a second response in verse 20 and 21. He says this, and the one sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. The second group of people or second kind of response we see are those with shallow hearts. I think this was me. I think when I heard about Jesus and the gospel and I placed my faith there, I was super excited, I was pumped. And then I came back to reality and I had all these stress and all these problems and and all these things happening. And and I had some friends who didn't really think it was cool that I was now about this Jesus thing. and, And I didn't really allow God's word to take root in my life. And so my excitement was short lived. I mean, as Jesus describes, the excitement doesn't leave for no reason. It's often in the face of persecution or great stress. I mean, I know of a few different people who have placed their faith in Christ and gone home from a camp or, or left church and, and told their family and friends, and they've faced ridicule from the people around them that care about them. So they kind of turn away. They pull back. And here's the thing. If, if you do believe in Christ, you're almost certainly going to face some opposition. And at some point when you do your commitment to the truth is going to be tested. And I love in Jesus's analogy how he talks about the sun is is like the persecution or distress, right? Like plants need the sun for life and to grow, but if there's no roots, if they don't have enough water kind of stored up, they will wither and die out. But if they do, if you do have deep and strong roots, the sun will only help that plant grow. And so if you do face persecution, if you do face opposition, God will just use that in your life to help you grow more. 
And so if you're new to church, if you're new to Jesus, if you're new here and, and you're excited about this stuff, that's incredible. And we, we do praise God for that when that happens. But I would encourage you to not just run off that excitement alone. I would encourage you to dig deep roots. Continuing in verse 22, we see a third heart response. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So the third group of people who hear God's words are those who have conflicting hearts or conflicted hearts or, or their hearts are conflicted because they're distracted. Because if we're thinking about, you know, like a whole garden and, and this analogy of planting seeds in a garden and, and there's something else, there are other things planted in the garden of your life that are pulling your attention away from the thing that matters most, that are choking out the thing that is growing that God is doing in your life. And, and when I think about this, I can't help but think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse one and two, when he says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, again, the foundation is the mercy and grace and power of God. But in view of that, in light of that truth, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And, and the truth is, is that we are all impacted by our surroundings. But our surroundings don't have to define us. We don't have to let them define us, but they will shape us. They can conform us. And so if we allow the things of this world to just be in our garden they're going to choke us out and they're gonna distract us and they're gonna take the sun and the light that we need and, and kind of take all these things that we need. And so what we need to do is prune away the things that really don't matter, the things that will just pull our attention and our hearts away from the one place that it needs to be away from God. The fourth heart response we see in, in verse 23. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields. Some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. So the last group of people we see who hear God's word are those who have cultivated hearts. These are people whose hearts, they're not hard, but they're open to receiving God's word. People who make room for God's word to take root in their soul. People who prune their surroundings and check their desires so that these things don't choke out their faith. People who have a genuine faith in Jesus that leads to the word of God producing fruit, bearing fruit in their lives. And when you have a cultivated heart and you receive God's word, things happen. Things change, differences uh, come to be, things become different. As Paul says, you're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. There's something different. In the CSB study Bible, it notes that a harvest of 10 to 20 times of what was sown was con considered to be a bumper crop given the primitive agricultural technology of that period. The amazing harvest described by Jesus' parable, 160, 30, shows that the true disciples produce fruit in a miraculous quantity. When a cultivated heart receives God's word, there's no mistaking it. Miraculous things happen. And, and when I think about that, I think about the end of my sophomore year and the way that I lived this kind of totally rebellious, kind of crazy life. And I think about the people that knew me and, and my classmates. And then I think about the start of my junior year and I was an absolutely different person. Night and day different. These were two different people that left and that came back to school. And the only explanation is the grace of God. 
He transformed me. I didn't just muster up the strength to just be different now. No, I lived kind of my life was, my heart was being cultivated by these things happening in my life and God was working in it. He was softening my heart and his word was taking root in my life as I began to be serious about his word. And it was only in his grace that I was able to do that, that that this transformation happened, but it did happen and it does happen. Things are different about us. But again, the, the difference lies not necessarily with the sower, doesn't lie necessarily with the seed. The sower and the seed are the same in all four scenarios. The difference is the soil. And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves, right, is which soil are you? Or as we asked earlier, what kind of heart do you have? Are you like the path? Do you have a hard heart? A heart that's unable or unwilling to understand? Are you like the rocky ground? Do you not allow the word of God to take root in your soul? Do you have a shallow heart where there's no room to grow? Are you like the seed among thorns? Do you have a conflicted heart? Do you have other things in your garden pulling you, distracting you, choking out your faith? Are you like the good soil? Do you have a heart that's receptive to Christ with room for his word to grow and and nothing, any there, no potential snares? And here's the thing, I I don't want you to feel shameful where you are. I want you to be honest with yourself and only you know this. I can't tell you where your heart is at and what your heart is like. You can only do that. But I want you to really examine it and not feel shame because of it. But what I want you to do is the thing that we all need to do no matter where we're at, and that's to cultivate your heart to receive God's truth. And what that looks like, I think is pretty simple. I think it looks like abiding in Jesus. That word abide, it means to make your home with, to make your home with Jesus in everything you do to spend time with him and to ask him to change your heart because he's the one that'll do it. He's the one that'll bear fruit through you. You don't have to bear the fruit yourself. He does it through you. But, but are you abiding in Jesus? Are you spending time reading his word and getting to know what he says about you and who he is? Are you spending time in prayer, really talking to him and listening? Are you spending time abiding him in your service, uh, abiding with him in your finances, abiding with him in your relationships, abiding with him in work, abiding with him in everything? It's not easy to do it, but, but I would encourage you to make it a habit of being with Jesus, and you have to discipline yourself to do it, but it's worth it. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, don't you know that runners in a stadium, they all race, but only one receives the prize. So run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And that's always resonated with me because I, I was a runner. Key word was a runner. And uh, when I was a runner, my coaches and I, we would come up with a strict game plan of how we were gonna get from point A to point B, how we were gonna reach the goal, how we were gonna get better to beat that record, to win that race, to do whatever it was. It was very strict and it was very intentional. The rest was intentional. The working out was intentional. All of it was intentional. Just like Paul. That's how Paul lived his life. He was very intentional about the way in which he lived. He controlled himself and disciplined himself to cultivate a heart that treasures Jesus above all else. 
And I want to close with one last passage from Paul. It's, it's probably one of my favorite uh, in the scriptures. It's Philippians chapter three, starting in verse seven. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, everything that he found value in, every place that he found purpose and identity, anything that was beneficial to him, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. And more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. So not just the gain, but everything else. I've considered it all to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's because of him that I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung, as trash, as garbage. Why? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And, and that's my hope and my prayer for myself. And that's my hope and my prayer for us, all of us, and for anyone who we interact with at the Ridge is that we may consider everything in our lives to be a loss because knowing Jesus is that much more valuable, is that much more important, that we may suffer the loss of all things so that we may treasure Jesus above every other thing, that our main goal and our main aim in life may be to know him and the power of his resurrection so that by doing that, we will treasure him above all else. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.